morning, church. It's great to see you on this third Sunday of Advent. We've been walking through the prologue of John as we see the, the presence of God revealed in so many ways in our lives. We looked at the, the creative presence of God and how he reveals himself in his creation and how we see the joy and the wonder of his grace the intricacy in the mind of God. We looked at how he chooses to reveal that to us last week. And today I want us to look at the most specific of all that revelation, that he has come to us in Jesus Christ. I want to specifically focus here in John chapter 1 on the 10th verse, and then especially the 14th verse. Verse 10 says, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. But then the pinnacle of John's prologue comes in that 14th verse. And what became such an offense to the world in which John spoke? The word became flesh and lived for a while among us. And we have beheld his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. What a task that John had taken on to try to share the glory that he and the other disciples had experienced, what they had seen, and trying to pass that on to us. And he invites us to come and experience that glory with him. But that wonderful word was a great offense in John's time. We've had 2,000 years to get used to the concept of God becoming man, and it's still a wonder to us. But it went against everything that the philosophy of that day spoke about. On Tuesday of this week, if you're going with us through the uh, devotion of Advent, this statement was there on Tuesday. The concept that God became human involved an emptying of the fullness of his divinity so that he could truly become one of us. This is something that must be accepted in faith. Our human reason cannot understand what it would mean for the divine to become human. However, in the mercy of God, not only has he has done this, but he's revealed it to us. Isn't that a marvelous thing? That God has done this miraculous thing and revealed it to us in his son, Jesus Christ. What it meant in John's day was a complete turnaround from what they believed. So let's look at the word, word. The word became flesh. You notice there, it's capitalized, speaking of Jesus, the ultimate reality of God in the universe. For the Greeks, there was no direct translation of this. Uh, It was logos. It it meant the ultimate reality. And so throughout the the years of Greek philosophy, that had changed. Heraclitus, born in 534 uh, before Christ, asked the question, what is real? It would be asked 75 years later by Socrates and others. Heraclitus famously said, you never step into the same stream twice. Change is this constant that is around us. And so the debate had raged for hundreds of years as to what this logos is, what this ultimate reality is. Some said it was the earth. Some said it was water. Some said it was fire. But Heraclitus famously said, this ultimate reality is change. And logos is the principle of continuity to which all of this change must adhere. It is either logos or chaos. It is either the order that God provides or disarray in the midst of our universe. And so John speaks this to them, and it creates all kinds of conflict in the Greek mind. 
The Stoics and other philosophers lived by this dualism, that there was the physical world, which was imperfect and ever-changing, and the spiritual world, which was perfect and never-changing. And yet John comes and says, man participates in the divine nature, the logos, the universal mind, the supreme intellect, the supreme ethic, has now come among us, has become flesh. And so John bases this on his own experience in the life of Jesus. He knows about how Jesus called him away from his fishing nets and called him to be a disciple, to follow him. His life changed forever. He saw the healings of Jesus. He writes about those. He heard the teachings of Jesus. He writes about those. He was there in the upper room when Jesus gave the sacrament. He was there at the cross. In fact, the only disciple who was at the cross. He was there for the resurrection appearances of Jesus. He was there for the ascension. He had experienced God's glory in so many ways. And now he wants to share it with the world. He had not only expressed it because of his time with Jesus, but also now he has had 60 years in this new church that had taken over the first century and had turned the world right side up. First of all, in Jerusalem, as he was caring for Mary and later caring for Mary in Ephesus as well and leading in the church there. He, he, so he blends this understanding of the Greek world with his proclamation that Jesus has become flesh. And so the first, <clears throat> first three or four verses, there's no problem for the Greeks. With verse four, there's a little hesitation because of the personal terms about the Almighty. Verse 10 is kind of okay. Verse 12 kind of gets them a little on edge. But the bombshell comes in this 14th verse. The word became flesh. And the Greek philosophers would say, no, that's absolutely impossible. John follows up on this in his epistle. First John, the first few verses of that letter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. Again, the capital W, Jesus Christ, the word of life, the logos. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. He invites us right in and everyone who would read this. You have fellowship with us along with Christ. Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy and your joy complete. What a word. What a word for a world that was completely at odds with this truth. We don't want to read verse 14 too casually. There is no comparison with Jesus. The very power of creation through whom everything was made, the ultimate reality, walked among us. John says he is the fullness of the Godhead. The exact representation, we read, of the being of God and the fullness of his radiance. And so John says this is not someone to philosophize about. This is someone to meet. And so we don't want to philosophize about Christianity. We introduce people to Jesus. We don't indoctrinate. We introduce someone who has changed us because we know him. We belong to him. And we introduce him to others. And so this word became flesh. 
The word in the Greek is, is sarx, the term that means the, the total humanity, our spirit, our mind, our body, everything essential to our humanness, Jesus became flesh. Not just clothed with flesh, but he became flesh. He didn't give that up at the resurrection. We still saw the nail prints in his hand and the gash in his side. He ate with them on the beach. He has taken up this humanity and taken it back to heaven. We recognize that he involves us because of this. His divinity was complete. It is clear. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He brought that divinity with him, but also his humanity is complete and universal. It's not the matter of his nationality, that he was born an Eastern man of dark skin. It didn't matter that he was born a man or not a woman. It didn't matter that he was in some regional difference than others. He is human, completely human. Nothing in the human condition is foreign to Jesus. No one like him, and yet he's like everyone. The word says he is tempted just as we are, yet without sin. And so he recognized the word, the ultimate reality. God himself became flesh. This turned the world on its ear. They didn't understand how that could possibly be. It upset all of their dualistic philosophy. But now, it says, the word became flesh and lived for a while among us. And the specificity of this is amazing because John is very careful to set it in the midst of the time frame in places that they know. It is a time when Herod was the king. It's time when Cyrenius was governor. It's time when Bethlehem, people were called together for the census. We recognize the historical setting for this. He introduces us to Mary and to Joseph. Not a principle, but a person. Jesus Christ, not the universal mind, not the supreme intellect, but Jesus, God among us, that we may know him. God makes himself accessible to us in Jesus Christ. In the past, he spoke in various ways in many different times through the prophets in all kinds of ways. But now he has given us the complete picture in Jesus Christ. It's not an abstract. But a person who lived a real life, who shed real tears. The favorite memory verse of every junior high boy who ever went to vacation Bible school. John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. And in those two words, we recognize the heart of God come among us. We read that Jesus wept over the tomb of Lazarus for the individual, his friend. And then he wept over the city of Jerusalem for the masses who had turned away from him, who would not receive him. Jesus still weeps over fallen humanity. He still weeps over those trapped in sin. He lived that real life, shed his real blood on a very real cross, rose from a very real tomb. We recognize the reality of the life of Christ who lived among us, literally sent his tent, set up his tent among us. Aren't you glad that Jesus has come all the way into our world? It's demonstrated so much in, in the biblical accounts. As we read of shepherds, as we read of the wise men, as we read of... Mary and Joseph, Simeon, Anna, Elizabeth, Zacharias, all the people in the story 
Jesus has engaged in our world in his fullness. And we celebrate the incarnation every day. We recognize that truth as we realize our own physical bodies and that we too are destined for glory. It says he is the firstborn among many to this new life. I love 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9 where it says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. That's the incarnation. He was in heaven. He came to us rich for our sakes became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. It completes the circle that God intends. He came down to rescue us and to take us again to be with him. A few months back, we talked about Jesus' upper room discourses and the prayer he had with his disciples. I long for you to be with me in glory. And so he's made it possible because of his incarnation. I love this quote from Max Lucado. He wrote, Mary didn't know whether to give him milk or to give him praise, but she gave him both, since he was, as near as she could figure, both hungry and holy. Joseph didn't know whether to call him son or father, but in the end he called him Jesus, since that was the angel said, and since he didn't have the faintest idea what to name a God that he could cradle in his arms. The vulnerability that God would become man, come as a helpless baby to introduce us to God the Father. In John 10, he says, I am come that you might have life. It was an offense to the people of John's day, but it's not an offense to us. We recognize the glory that he reveals in the incarnation. The incarnation really demonstrates how valuable we are to God. I mentioned to you that I pastored a church in Hawaiian Islands for 10 years of my ministry. And while I was there, I learned of a story from Micronesia, two of the small islands there in Micronesia. First of all, the island of Nurabande. There was a young man on that island, Johnny Lingo, who was, though young, the richest man on the island. He had established quite an import-export business and had amassed quite a wealth. Early in his life, he'd been at one of the neighboring islands of Kinawata and had fallen in love with a little girl named Sarita. Hadn't seen her now for many years. Sarita was now almost an exact opposite. If Johnny was strong and popular and and, uh, successful, Sarita was just the opposite. She was a very plain young woman, now skinny and her shoulders usually hunched over her head down, the teasing of her peers had broken her spirit. She had no self-esteem. But now she had come to the common age when they are given in marriage. And Sarita's father, Sam Karu, uh, hoped for a dowry that was common in their culture. And he was a farmer, and the dowry at that time was paid with cows. That was part of the bride price. The most beautiful and talented girls would receive four or five cows as a dowry. Sam hoped for one. (laughs) But Johnny had fallen in love with Sarita early in his life, and he notified her father that he wanted to negotiate for her hand in marriage. And so two two reputations collided here. Johnny, who was shrewd in business, and Sam, who was a simple farmer and knew nothing about business. So Sam set his strategy. He would ask for three cows, 
He figured he would hold out for two until he was sure he could get one. (laughs) And so the day came when Johnny came to speak to Sam. The negotiations were short and sweet. Johnny said, Sam Carew, father of Sarita, I offer eight cows for your daughter. And after stammering for a few moments, Sam said, I accept your offer. Five months later, after the marriage, Johnny hosted a guest uh, that was in the export-import business with him from the United States. He knew that the guest had just been to the neighbor island of Kinawata, and he had heard the story. They laugh on that island about how their worst businessman had bested Johnny in the bride price. Knowing that his guest had been there previously, he, he asked him very directly, What do they say about me on that island? The visitor was a little caught off guard, but he he reported what they said, and he said, they wonder why you paid so much. Just then they were interrupted as a, a beautiful young woman came in with fresh flowers for the table, and after a moment she left. The most striking woman that the man from the States had ever seen, tall and poised with a sparkle in her eye. That is my wife, Sarita. Johnny said, and the guest responded, but she's beautiful. That's not at all how they described her. They said you were cheated in the bride price. So Johnny responded, do you think eight cows was too high a price? And the guest said, no, but what changed her? And Johnny told him this. Do you ever think what it must mean to a woman to know that her husband has settled on the lowest price for which she can be bought? When women talk, they boast of what their husbands paid for them. When the others say four or five cows, how would it be to say one or two? In Kinawata, Sarita believed she was worth nothing. But now she knows she is worth more than any other woman in our islands. That thought brought out the best in her. She saw herself as I saw her, beautiful and of ultimate worth. And when I equate that story to the Incarnation and what God has done for us, he has told us how much we are worth to him by sending his own son to come to live for us, to die for us, to show us the Father, the Incarnation, this marvelous, marvelous miracle, this marvelous mystery. Let me read you a poem called The Mystery of Incarnation. He who is the Almighty became a suckling baby. He who is all wise took on the dumbness of a newborn. He whom the heavens cannot contain was enclosed in a woman's womb. He before whom the seraphims continually cried, Holy, 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 was born of a sinner into a world under the dominion of sin. He who is unchanging went through nine months of constant change. He who is all-knowing had to communicate through baby cries. He who is infinite became a microscopic cell. He who is love itself was born outside a hotel because no one had room for his laboring mother. He who is the creator became a creature He who has always been spirit took on the awkwardness of a human body. 
He who is eternal allowed himself to be bound by time. He who his light was entombed for nine months in warm blackness. He who is just was accused of being an illegitimate child. He who is sovereign God became dependent upon a human man and woman for his food and clothing. He who is clothed with majesty was born in a cattle trough. He who alone is self-sufficient had to be cleaned and nursed. He who is life was born with a death warrant over his head. Can there be a greater mystery? Can there be a greater miracle? We've been looking in these days at the glory of his presence, the wonder of what God has done. Emmanuel, God with us forever. Can you get over it? (laughs) We shouldn't. Let's be amazed during this Advent season at what God has done for us, what he has done within us, and what he can do through us. Father, your incarnation stands as the cornerstone of history, that you have come among us that we might know you. Not just to demonstrate your power, not just to point us to your creation, but to reveal your fullness in Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh and lived for a while among us, and we have beheld your glory. May that glory shine through us as we have opportunity in this season, perhaps as no other season of the year, to share the good news of Jesus Christ. When others are talking about the Christmas season or a little break from the virus, may we speak of the joy we find in knowing this Savior whom we celebrate. May we rejoice that you are Lord of our lives and of this world. In the name of Christ. The Lord bless you, keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace, his peace, during this Advent season. God bless you. Have a great day in the Lord.